0: Support for this podcast has been provided by Alliance Bernstein Investment Management and Research, Making Money Meaningful.
1: When I hear talk about needing to produce more food to feed the world, I always shake my head. I say, I don't get it. We don't need to produce more food to feed the world. We just need to utilize what we're producing already.
0: This is Startup Stories from the Startup Nation. My name is Yigal Marcus. Thank you for joining us. In this podcast, we'll meet the entrepreneurs who have personified the economic miracle known as a startup nation, the state of Israel. We'll learn about the culture which helped incubate them and their ideas. We'll learn of their successes and of course their failures. And we'll explore why it is that Israel develops some of the leading innovators of our time. To begin today's episode, let's play a little game. When I say a word, write down the very first thing that enters your mind. Word number one, startup. Word number two, hunger. Now, when most people hear the word startup, they think of a young former intelligence officer from the Israeli military who sets out to solve a big tech problem or a scientist trying to cure disease, someone that we typically interview here on the show. And when most people think of the word hunger, they think of how they feel a half hour before dinner every night. I recently had a personal experience which dramatically widened my personal definition of both a startup and hunger. I was invited to a large facility operated by a nonprofit organization called Leket Israel. I observed hundreds of volunteers at work boxing crates full of delicious and nutritious food, which they then sent out to delivery to those in desperate need. Leket is the National Food Bank of Israel, rescuing food from around the country and delivering it to people in need directly and through 210 organizations that they serve. Over 60,000 people volunteer every year at Leket. They employ over a hundred people, people of all cultures and creeds, and they annually distribute 45 million pounds of fruits and vegetables and three million cooked meals. Now, hunger is not a problem limited to African children in a faraway land like we see on TV. No, It's a pandemic that affects people all over the world, even people under our very nose. You see, over 800 million people worldwide, one out of every nine people, don't have enough food to lead a healthy, active lifestyle. In fact, poor nutrition causes 45% of deaths in children under five years of age, totaling some 3.1 million children deaths per year. But there is a solution. Not necessarily growing more food, but in preserving more food. In Israel alone, a generally prosperous country, nearly 33% of all food is wasted, totaling some 2.3 million tons per year. And nearly half of that wasted food is rescuable. And that's where Leket Israel comes into play. When he encountered this problem firsthand, social entrepreneur and Leket founder Joseph Gittler did something about it. I'm here today with Joseph Gittler, the founder of Leket Israel, which is uh, also known as the National Food Bank, which is an amazing nonprofit organization that he built from the ground up and has really become the leading food rescuer uh, in, in the country. And we're going to get to that in a minute, but but first of all, Joe, thank you very much for, for joining us today. We really uh, really appreciate it.
1: Great to be here. Great view from your office here.
0: <laughs> um, I've actually known Joe. Full disclosure, I've known Joe for the better part of my life. We we grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey together. Your story is actually a quite impressive and inspiring. And and I thought that, you know, on this on, on this uh, podcast, more often than not, we talk to for profit entrepreneurs who have built profitable businesses which is defined as businesses that make money and succeed. But Leket is equally, if not even greater uh, in terms of uh, success. It's just that success is defined in a different way. And so I wanted to really take your story and, and let the world hear it because I think it's, it's a model that's inspiring but, and I think it's probably a model that can be copied. Uh, outside of this country uh, of Israel. But um, let's take a step back for for, for a minute and and talk a little bit about you. So you grew up in Teaneck, uh, New Jersey.
1: Kind of, (laughs) I really grew up in Washington Heights, New York till the age of 15. But uh, in fact, the first article ever written about our work, my old rabbi from New York called and said, Washington Heights gets so little don't take you, don't take yourself away from us also. So, but I had some good years in Teaneck and my mother still lives there proudly. It's a wonderful place.
0: You, uh, you actually went to university. You graduated, uh, actually when I did 1996 and then went to Fordham university law school. I did. So you got your law degree and then what?
1: So I got my law degree. I had a very brief legal career. Uh, some, sometimes articles are written about our work and they'll, Call me, you know, in Hebrew, Joseph Gittler Oregdin, which means Joseph Gittler, attorney at law. And I only worked for 10 months as an attorney. I almost don't feel comfortable with them using the term. And in fact, many people don't like being called an attorney at all. Right. So, um, but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed my law school career. It gives you a lot. I thank my parents for pushing me to do it. And Fordham was a wonderful place to go to school. But then once we made our move to Israel, which was the end of my 10 months of my legal career, um, I knew I wasn't going to continue with that.
0: I imagine the skills that you learned in law school have helped you in your career.
1: I think so. I mean, I don't do a lot of negotiations or write a lot of contracts, but I think the general worldview and the education—well, let me actually—it's an interesting thing that you say— I think when I started this organization, my initial reaction was, I don't think this is gonna go anywhere because the lawyers who advise their catering partners or farming partners or food manufacturing partners are gonna tell their clients, why would you wanna get involved in this? What benefit are you getting? I only see risk. And if you know the food goes bad and someone gets sick, they're gonna sue you. That was what I was expecting having grown up in the US a very litigious country, with lawyers you know, in every corner, trying to figure out ways of suing someone. <laughs> and that was my expectation in those early days when I made those original calls to caterers. I figured the response was gonna be, we'll look into it, we'll see what kind of tax deductions we can get, we'll see what our risk of legal liability is. And in the country and in the startup nation kind of mentality, that's not what happened. People said, this is fantastic we've been waiting for something like this. Where were you yesterday? So my legal training in a way was a detriment in the beginning because of my mindset. I thought this is the response I was going to get. And I was pleasantly surprised by being wrong.
0: In 2000, you moved to Israel. You moved married or before you got married or after you got married?
1: I moved married. I had been married already for five years. I got married young. That's why I'm Forty-four, and I already have a 20-year-old daughter. And <laughs> one of us is
0: getting old, by the way. I don't want to say who it is, but one of us is getting old.
1: <laughs> so I moved my wife, Alila, is from Toronto. We'd been married five years. We lived in Riverdale, New York. And we came with one daughter, Maytal, who was two at the time. And our other four children were all born here in the state of Israel. Why'd you move to Israel? My late father used to say, you're one of the very few that drank the Kool-Aid. I used to say it all the time. We were educated that way. I think very similar. We come from very similar backgrounds. We were educated that way, that it's been the dream of the Jewish people to move here. The schools I went to, the summer camps I went to, all talked the same talk. But like most things in school and camp, no one actually listens. So I guess this is what I listened to. In fact, I was a bit of a, I don't know how you say this in English, you can chutzpah I was a bit of a rude kid. Maybe most of the listeners know what that means. They know what it is. They know what it is, okay. Universal uh, (laughs)
0: universal, uh, description.
1: So I was a bit of a rude kid, especially to my mother. My father was very busy. He was really always in the hospital working as a doctor. And so my mother definitely got the brunt of my chutzpah, and I'm the oldest of four boys. And uh, when we announced our Aliyah, and we were really, we waited, my wife, I couldn't tell my parents. We told them, after Passover, we moved that summer. That's not the way it works. I, just, I couldn't do it. And I was still, even though at that point at 25 years old, I was much more, uh, less chutzpahdik to my parents. I remember saying, jokingly, I said, well, you know, you taught me honor thy mother and thy father, and you <laughs> taught me move to Israel. I went with move to Israel. So it's just, that was sort of the apex of uh, my behavior. But of course, my parents were and continue to be very proud of the move, but taking at the time their only grandchild, and a girl, to boot, who we never had. We never had girls.
0: Right. That's that was right. extremely Poor
1: boys. painful for them, and that's my only regret. I have zero regrets about making Aliyah. Certainly, the work and what I've been able to accomplish here made them even prouder. But the only regret is, you know, not being able to go to those Sunday night. You know, just pop into your parents, go for. A barbecue, my brothers live in, in uh, two in New York, one in Denver, Colorado. I see them a fair bit because of my travels on behalf of like it, but it's still not the same.
0: Yeah. I know your late father, I knew your late father. Um, he was obviously a, b- a very big influence in your life.
1: Very, it's amazing how much I quote, co- he was a very memorable, a uh, little bit cynical, edgy, uh, morbid, sort of a guy, impact on a lot of people. My friends, first and foremost, you know, I used to have, once, every once in a while, my friends would, like, where are they? They're hanging out with your father. We came for your father, not <laughs> for you. I used to get that a lot. And certainly while we were mourning him and people were visiting us, we heard and learned so many different ways that he influenced people. First and foremost for me, interestingly, was all, a number of friends of mine who are doctors, a few of them who are ear, nose, and throat surgeons like he was, who were specifically influenced by him, uh, they just thought the world of him, and they said, well, we want to be a doctor like him. And So they picked his profession. Others might have tried also, maybe they just didn't get into it. Yeah. But uh, the ones who did and you know some of them, are very happy with uh, their choices.
0: Wow. So in 2000, you moved to Israel, and you did what?
1: So uh, I came two weeks before the second intifada started.
0: Perfect timing.
1: I thought it was perfect timing (laughs) because it was great timing. Israel was doing awesome then. Two weeks later, things went really bad. Um, I had tremendous, it's amazing, it was such a good time that a guy like me uh, was offered uh, law jobs. I was offered some consulting jobs. But I took the easy route out and I went to work in a family business that my wife's family owns here in Israel. And my first year was spent working in a startup that we owned. I wouldn't even call it a startup. Maybe you call it a I don't know. If I described what they were doing to some of your more distinguished uh, high-tech people, they would say, that doesn't sound like a startup to me. But it was a small company, okay. <laughs> which we owned <laughs> part of. And it was in Jerusalem. So I was driving. It was before some of the great highways that have been added. In the last 18 years, I worked there for a year, and then I worked for two years in our main office in Kfar Saba. Oh, that's local. That was local. Yeah. Even then, it's cra- as crazy as it sounds. It's maybe five kilometers from my house. It would take 30 minutes.
0: Sometimes. <laughs> that's the rule in Israel to get anywhere. You know, it's at least 30 minutes. You can go across the street and it takes 30 minutes. Look, sometimes. Going, it going
1: back to my father for a minute, he spent tens of thousands of hours on the Cross Bronx Expressway. I remember saying it in his eulogy how many more years of his life he could have had productively (laughs) if he hadn't sat in so much traffic. And that's why, by the way, I am a big proponent, where possible, of working close from home to home. And that's why our offices, our main distribution center, are within two kilometers of my house. That's the big (laughs) benefit I've given myself. And that's certainly something where you can swing it.
0: 2003, you conceived of Leket Israel. Tell me, when did you think of this idea?
1: Okay, so a few things happened um, that led me on this path. So one was opportunity. After September 11th, uh, Israeli high tech really suffered. A lot of what I was working on really dried up. And I just started to think to myself, maybe I should look for something new. It's a family business, no one was kicking me out. I was welcome. I was offered other opportunities in, in the family. Um, ultimately decided not to take those, and that's my good fortune to have been able to make that choice. Um, that was number one. Uh, number two, like all of us who come to Israel, I saw at events, at hotels, the copious amounts of food, and then like everyone said, what are they doing with it? And never did anything about it for the first three years. Let's put that on the side. And then really in late 2002, with my job situation in a bit of flux, and all this food waste, started to just get a sense of more and more people in Israel struggling. Partially because of the impact of the Intifada, partially because of changes in the economy. I mean, the people who come on this show, generally, okay, they've done tremendous work. They've raised the standard of living in this country to unbelievable heights. The unfortunate part of that, and we see it all over the Western world, is there's always a percentage of the population that gets left behind. Not always because of a fault of their own, sometimes because of a lack of education, sometimes because they're disabled, elderly, they can't help themselves. But primarily, and this was my driver, and this I give some, some credit to the government of the State of Israel, they put out in 03, the National Insurance Institute put out its first ever poverty reports. And it talked about what I'll call the usual suspects. Okay? I don't think we have to delve into that too much. But what hit me on the head was the unusual suspects. And that was people who were working and still needed support living at or below the poverty line. I couldn't understand that. I was naive. I didn't know enough. I was not educated well enough about poverty. I didn't know that where we come from in the States, same problems, okay? People working full-time and still needing Medicare, still needing soup kitchens, still needing the food banks. I, I couldn't bear that in the country that I moved to. I still can't bear it. It hasn't changed that much. Unfortunately, our work helps those people, but the situation of the working poor continues in all of the West.
0: Referencing that Israel poverty report, which which we saw uh, one of the conclusions, which is shocking, is that over a third of the children in Israel live below the poverty line.
1: I don't want to be sacrilegious here. I take those kind of numbers with a grain of salt.
0: There's a lot of,
1: um, you know, there's a lot of uh, cash. Israel's no different than any other country. The statistics the government puts out have to be based on official yeah. numbers, Whatever, wherever those numbers are coming from. But, that being said, whether it's a hundred thousand working poor families, or a third of children living below the poverty line, or twenty-five percent of the population living below the poverty line, put it in half. Let's yeah. say, doesn't make any difference. It may make difference. It may make difference to the policymakers. But for a guy like me, who's just trying to find a way to help poor people, so if the numbers were. Two million Israelis or one and a half million Israelis?
0: Doesn't make a difference. You know,
1: for me... The need is great. The need is great. And the same thing, by the way, when it comes to food waste, which is our focus of our work. Now we happen to put out a much more professional food waste report together with BDO, the accounting firm. But really, if you think about it, it doesn't really matter. If it's 40% or 30% or 20%, our estimates of that may be we today, after 15 years... I know we haven't gotten to what we do. We're still only getting to 5% of the food that we think is accessible. So,
0: so let's take a step back, and and you, you saw the challenge. Um, poverty, people who are hungry. W- what did you do next?
1: Okay, so my mindset was of a business person. You jump into it after you do your research. Is there an opportunity? Right, I'm trying to think of startup words. Right. Okay, um, And so I spent, I don't know, four to six weeks visiting Israeli nonprofits, soup kitchens, homeless shelters, battered women's shelters, after-school clubs for kids, et cetera, trying to figure out how I could help. Okay? So I wasn't there necessarily to give money, although that was something they were interested in. They figured uh, an English-speaking, semi-articulate, reasonably well-dressed guy walks in. Oh, this guy's here to give us That's the way Israeli charities, they hear English, they, they see dollar signs. Um, but That wasn't the, the, my main purpose. They talked about volunteerism, struggling with that. You know, I figured, you know, if you're a local agency, you've got to be able to recruit your own volunteers. And then I would start asking that. well, what's all this food you're serving? Where are you getting it? Well, we get a vast majority of It, it didn't matter what type of organization it was by raising money, spending money, spending time, and then buying it. I said, well, what about all the leftover food from hotels, or caterers, or corporate cafeterias, or army bases, or farms, etc., etc.?" And they said, you know, we're taking care of the poor, the battered, the beaten, we don't have time for that. We don't have time for that logistics. We don't have the money for that. We need, that's great if you're willing to do it. We need someone to figure out how to get the food from those people who have it and get it to people like us whose job is not really only to feed people. In soup kitchens, maybe yes, but if you take after school clubs for kids or high schools for youth at risk or battered women's shelters, food is just part, or homeless shelters, food is just part of what they're doing. It's not their core mission if you go to any of those agencies and you say what's your core mission it's not gonna say feeding people the core mission is rehabilitation education etc so i took this message and i flew to toronto
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well i did one of the i checked with some larger agencies in israel that were doing a little bit of this and i said to them well what's happening in catered food and what's happening in cook food and what's happening not in tel aviv and i didn't get the answers i needed i didn't feel like I needed to start something on my own. It's you know, in hindsight, that's the best thing you can do, be your own boss, etc. but it wasn't necessarily my goal. My goal is to see how I could help. I flew to Toronto. I spent a week at Second Harvest, Canada. My world, unlike the usual guests on the show, is a very open and sharing world except for donor lists. so, Anyone who's listening who plans Darn. to... Darn. You know? Yeah, that's what you need. Well, we're kind of in the same business. Okay. You know, you know? So anyone who might consider at the end of this making a financial donation to like it, we will not share your information with anyone except the people who work for our organization. Um, so uh, flew there. They opened up everything to me, meeting with their board, going on their trucks, doing their food collections, just seeing how they did things. Why, why, why Toronto? Just my wife is from there, and it was just. I had so to be she there. knew about it. No, I don't think she even. Knew. I think I just had. I had spent a lot of time on Google um, researching, and I think when I. I think what actually might have happened is when I started speaking to my brother-in-law who lives in Toronto about it, he said a guy I work, I do work with, or I know from I think from YPO. Um, is, on the bo- is the chairman of the board of Second Harvest, let me reach out to him. And so that just opened up. I, don't, I think anyone would have opened their doors to me, maybe not at the same level. They really gave me uh, their full attention. And of course, I came back to Israel and did nothing like what I learned there. But conceptually, the same, utilizing healthy, nutritious, safe food to help those in need. What we do in Israel and how we do it is very different than what they do there and what they do in most food banks and food rescue organizations anywhere in the world. So
0: you came back to Israel. You're a single person, not single, like, you know, you're an individual as opposed to having an organization behind you. Um, <clears throat> and you conceived of of what Leket does, uh, which is what?
1: I, you know, I came back and I said to myself, not a lot of activity in this area. What's the low-hanging fruit? Who, you know, who can you get? Now, not realizing that Israel really is such a small place, it can pretty much get to anyone pretty quickly, including the prime minister. I'm like, hey, really, it's not that hard to get to anyone in this country. But, you know, again, as a, a new immigrant with weak Hebrew skills, I figured let me, and, and what I was familiar with was catering, catering halls. I didn't know them, but you know, you go online, and there were all these wedding sites, and you could get the names and the phone numbers, and caterers are usually not big operations. So I just started to call them. Did a lot of call them. Do you have leftover food? I do. What do you do with it? I feed our staff, and then I throw it away. And then how I started this conversation, the million-dollar question, will you give it to me? And the answer was almost a unanimous yes. Okay, when I made those calls, my plan was okay. I'm going to take my wife's car, which was a little bit of, which was a station wagon, and um, I'm going to go out by, by yourself. Myself. Yeah, I think in the beginning, I think any entrepreneur you talk to, for or not for profit, when you're proving a concept, you got to do it. You know? And I always, you know, I remember one night uh, in the beginning where. Because one of the rules I made was the caterers have to answer me. And and the smartphones were a little less, you know, attached to your hip then. But I made a rule. If they don't answer me to tell me if it's worth coming out, because it was late, 10, 11, 12, 1, 2 in the morning. If they don't answer me, I'm not going. Then I fell asleep one night. It was in the beginning. 2 a.m. I get a call. Yossi! If what the, Yossi, where are you? We're waiting for you. That was my response. And... You know, the other side of the bed gave me a, a kick and said, you know, if you're trying to do this, do it, which that's any entrepreneur will tell you that. And there's no job in life. Today, I'm very spoiled. Okay? <laughs> you know, I've got a big, we've got a big operation. I spend my time doing pleasant things like this. But certainly in the first few years, there's nothing I didn't do. Okay. Did it well, didn't do it well. Part of the reason we had to build up because there are things I knew I couldn't do well. And so I just started going out at night to these catered events, two, three, four, five a night. I couldn't do much more than that. I I, I wasn't trying to convince the caterers to store it for me. I wasn't trying to convince them to take it back to their kitchens and I would pick it up the next day. It was more, I'm going to come when it's fresh and it's going to enter whatever plan I had, which we'll get to. And the amount of food, the quality of food, the joy of the caterers, and especially the waitering staff, was palpable. And then we came to the next stage: is, what do you do with the food? Right? So we're storing it overnight in my own refrigerator in my house, and then refrigerators in my garage. And you know, immediately once I had this response from the caterers, I said, "Well, I need somewhere to give it to." I wasn't recreating the wheel. The agencies who told me we need help, those were always gonna be my customers. And that's the way all food banks work. You won't find any major food bank that delivers directly to individuals in need. All of us do the same thing. And so, locally where I live, I had a few organizations signed up and I started just to bring them either at night, either they would meet me or I had a key or I had a code. If we couldn't work that out, I would store it in my refrigerators overnight Bring it chilled the next day. And then they would do what they did. Whatever that is, primarily feeding on the spot because this food was already a bit risky. And that was it. We were off to the races.
0: What is the magnitude of the amount of food that is wasted in Israel?
1: In financial terms, about 19.5 billion shekels. Okay. Now that was, that's from our report two years ago. The population's grown. Our influence on getting people to think about food waste, it's out there, and people talk about it. I don't know how much impact it has, and we're not the only ones. It's become a topic in the world. This is not something that your listeners are going to say, what is Yigal onto this evening? Like, this is not something anyone's ever heard of. People, this is a topic, okay? When you do... You go into search engines, you see it. So they talk about 9.5 billion shekels, 2.3 million tons of food waste a year, okay? Half of that we talk about in the home. Okay. Less rescuable by us, okay? Which means, and it happens to be on the way here on the radio, there was an ad on one of the radio stations which is very socially conscious trying to talk to people about being more careful in your supermarkets when you're purchasing, wasting in your homes. That's all part of our uh, grand mission. But of course, when people get the message too well, we have nothing to feed the poor. There's a conflict in what we do. But the food waste is so massive that it doesn't matter. That's where we are. Have food waste tomorrow. You're still talking about over a million tons just in little itty-bitty Israel. Think about the rest A the million,
0: ones. A million tons.
1: Yeah. Look, in the US they talk about hundreds of millions of tons. We could feed the world very, I, I'll put it like this. When I hear talk about needing to produce more food to feed the world, I always shake my head. I say, I don't get it. We don't need to produce more food to feed the world. We just need to utilize what we're producing already. And so if we can figure that out, certainly in the rich Western countries, it's implausible that we have people who are hungry. And then the excess from our countries needs to go to the places where they really don't even have the resource.
0: In, in one of your publications, you actually say that in order to really to to meet the needs of Israel for people who are uh, not um, getting enough enough food, uh it's four hundred seventy thousand tons that you need to save. Sounds right. That's twenty percent.
1: Twenty percent. Yeah, I mean, really, not everything we say is rescuable, but twenty percent. We're about ten percent there. So you're. We're about forty. We're doing forty thousand or so. I don't. It's interesting. A lot of our literature talks about tonnage. I like to talk about tonnage when I talk about fruits and vegetables because it just makes sense. But even in fruits and vegetables, you know, are you talking about potatoes? You're talking about lettuce, right? right. <laughs> that makes a big difference. Right. But So we talk about tonnage, about 40 million pounds of fruits and vegetables this year that we'll distribute, rescued from farms and packing houses, and about another two and a half million cooked meals. Putting those into tonnage is almost a little bit silly, so I like to split those up. But increasing our output by about 1,000%, if that's the correct math, we think would solve most of the food aspect of poverty. It's very. I want to make that right. very clear, right? I hope it says it on our <laughs> cheat sheet, right? We talk about, um, you know, I don't talk about solving poverty. There's only one way to solve poverty, people having good paying jobs that relates to the cost of living in the particular jurisdiction they're in. That's, that's it, there's no other solution. But if we, and that's a big impact that like it has, if we can free up funds for families, for these organizations that they were spending on food, that money can be used for other things. How many calls do we get about, we were able to buy the kids computers because we don't have to spend it on food. We were able to take a trip to a museum. We were able to rent a bigger apartment. Whatever it is, it really runs the gamut. Um, And that's something really, really special um, that, we find from our work, the impact is not just feeding people and giving them better nutrition. There's so many other aspects to our work that are a win-win-win. That's what I see.
0: You started off by literally taking your wife's car, going around to these catering um, events, taking the food, redistributing it to to other um, people. How did you go from one person to take the next step?
1: Right. Um, So I saw pretty quickly that I wasn't. I was very limited on my own. So we had at the time station
0: wagons aren't that big, you know.
1: (laughs) But one of the stories I always like to tell is we went in a bigger station wagon when I had started to recruit volunteers. One of those old Volvos, and we filled the car. And the guy I was with told me, Sayonara, he left me at the catering hall (laughs) because there was only room for bread. Wow. (laughs) We had bags of bread that needed to take up the front seat. That was cool. That's you know that's a moment when you say you know we've made it we've we're, we're on to something um look I saw very quickly how much could one guy pick up in his car I need volunteers so at the time 15 years ago we had something called the ranana list which was a list serve I need a plumber I need a this I need that and I just put it out there I need volunteers people are willing come to my house 25 people showed up
0: 25 people responded
1: Yep, one of them is still with us. She was a volunteer, Helene Mittman. She was a volunteer for ten years. Now she's on staff. Um, and that was it. We just started to get people to go out at night. So I took on a little bit more of a role of a coordinator. Still picking up food because whenever I didn't have a volunteer, that was me. Then started to drive around during the day, look for again corporate type cafeterias, army bases, just knocking on you know one of our one of the bases here where they have the Patriot missiles. Very Basic you can't just walk into. I just... Walk, I was up. wondering how
0: you're going to, you know, walk up to an army base I just and say, came up to the me. guard station. And <laughs> you I did? Said,
1: yeah, I just walked up to the guard station.
0: And they let you in?
1: No, they didn't let me in, but they said, well, we'll call the chef. Let me see what he says. That's not really the way to work with the army. And today we work with the army from the top down. We have official contract with the army. We're the only organization in Israel approved to pick up food from the army. When we can't pick it up, we bring in our partners who, you know, have to come in under our um, guys. But um, I never, you know, I remember um, one of Israel's leading companies had a a factory. I don't know if I'm supposed to say the names or not. Um, Teva, okay. (laughs) And I, they have a manufacturing facility in Kvarsaba. And I just, again, walked up to the guard station. I said, he said, what do you want? I said, because it's just so weird. No one walks up to everyone, drives up to the art station, and then they open the gate for you to go in. So, what do you want? So I said, I'd like to speak to the chef. He said, that's first, certainly the first time anyone asked me to speak to the chef. He said, what do you want? I said, well, I want to see if there's excess food that I could pick up. And, and the chef was so, they're all so excited. That was it. People were just, I mean, it's really interesting. In hindsight, I say to myself, why didn't people just do this on their own? Why would the chef throw it away? Why wouldn't he pack it up and just figure it out? But people are busy. They're tired. They're underpaid, especially in these um, industries. And so, because I I say to myself sometimes, like, you created this monster, Joseph, where you have volunteers who need to go out at night in their PJs and pick up food. Why didn't the bloody caterers just do it themselves? My, My grandfather was a caterer. Passed away actually very close to when I started the organization. And you know, part of it is they're just tired, it's a hard job, but such joy again when they saw that, that food wasn't going to waste. And they would all help. Even though I said no one needs to help me, they wanted to get into that. They wanted part of that good deed and something that they had seen all the time, throwing away this food. Boom. This food is not going to feed someone poor in our country. They loved it. Not a hard sell.
0: So you had twenty-five volunteers, and you were picking up primarily catering food, and you expanded to cafeterias well, or yeah, catered
1: or, food during the day. Catering at during night, the day. and then we went to the day.
0: Got it. What was the next step in building the organization?
1: So the, the next next two things we did is we hired our first part-time employee, and she took funded me, how? Funded in the beginning by by my wife and I. We funded the organization in the beginning. And then I had a friend actually in the community who said, okay, you're hiring your first employee. Instead of you having to do it, let me go to some people in our community and I'll get some money for you. So he raised, I don't know, $20,000, $25,000 in the beginning. The, then I started doing, so I said, okay, I'm going to need to raise some money for this. I mean, our budget in the first year was $70,000 and it doubled every year for the first 10 years, basically, Okay. I know. I hope I said that right because you're going to do the math on me <laughs> and check me on that. Um, and then, oh, you don't have a calculator. Hey, we're, good. We're, oh, you're good
0: at math. We're, we're Bernstein people. We're good at You're good, we're at, good math, at numbers, but you're not that good. Um,
1: <laughs> so then I did two things. So the first one is I started to research who could we get support from. Now, for listeners who aren't so familiar with this, the difference between Israeli organizations and most organizations anywhere else in the world is we tra- try to raise our funding not only in our local community, but also overseas. Right. Very atypical. Uh, uh, Second Harvest Canada, they're not going anywhere except Toronto, no one outside of Toronto pretty much is giving them any money, okay? But in, in the world we live in, in the Israel world, the Jewish world, um, it's, it's the opposite. It's, it's uh, an Israeli organization can theoretically raise funds anywhere, which is something really special. So I started oh, doing my research.
0: It's a global family.
1: It's a global family. You do see it in other, you know, other ethnic groups. You know, I, I know I've spoken to a lot of Indians who care about the motherland and send money back. So you see that a lot. We certainly have a very long, proud history of doing that. Um, but the thing that came next and really made a difference for us financially and also in, uh, let's call it approbation, is I tried to find foundations who gave to Israel gave to social services specifically in this realm, and I found two. One in Australia, one in New York, who had funded similar type of operations uh, to Leket, and one was called One Umbrella. That's not the name of the foundation, the organization. One One was funding actually Kosher City Harvest in New York, and one was funding a startup like us called One Umbrella in Melbourne, Australia. And so I got in touch with them. And I said, I'm trying to do what you're funding in Israel. And both of them came on board. And really, those two foundations, which are well-known major foundations in their cities, um, they really, you know, they, they were with us for the first few years. It was just, it was a door opener. You'd go to other funders. They'd say, well, who else is helping you? It's like when you're trying to get your first job. Get me a reference. how well, am I supposed to have a reference? I'm trying to get my first job. Right. For me, this was gold okay that we were able to convince them give us that uh you know fra- seed round what year was that do you remember that was 2003
0: 2003, 2003. Oh, in the beginning you, your first warehouse was also open in 2003 and it says here that that it was in an old chicken coop
1: so that probably i, I not remember that probably happened towards the end of 2003 okay this stuff happened in the beginning you know what i hiring the first employee was around march 2003 um Getting some of this funding was over those next few months. And then we, in June '03, we bought our first small vehicle, which actually, we, even though we hired a driver to drive it, we made sure it was small enough that it didn't need a special driver's license. And so anyone could drive it. Of course, it was stick shift, and most Americans don't <laughs> learn stick shift anymore.
0: These are the lessons you learn,
1: right? Yeah. <laughs> And today we have many, many, many trucks, much, much bigger than that. This
0: concludes part one of my interview with Joseph Gittler, the founder of Leket Israel. Tune in for part two, when we will explore how Joseph grew an organization that attracted 25 volunteers when it first started to over 60,000 annual volunteers today, and how Leket Israel can become the prototype to solve world nutritional insecurity. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Startup Stories in the Startup Nation. I'm the host, Yigal Marcus. The associate producers are Moshe Raps and Avi Maklis, and the senior research analyst is Lior Lebin. If you have a startup that you think we should feature on air, please email me at yigal.marcus at bernstein.com or at startupstoriesisrael at gmail.com. No good startup in Israel is too big or too small. And in our new upcoming Just Starting Up segment, We'll give entrepreneurs with a big idea the opportunity to bring those ideas to the world. A big, very special thank you to my employer, Alliance Bernstein Investment Management and Research, who has been incredibly supportive of this initiative. And please share these podcasts with your friends, like us on Facebook, and please, please, please rate us on iTunes. Until next time, thank you for listening.